For our scripture reading now, we turn to Mark's Gospel account, chapter 7. We turn to this remarkable story here in, in the Gospels, Mark chapter 7. And as you can see there in your bulletin, I'll begin reading for us at verse 31 through to the end of the chapter. So listen now to the word of God, Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that in Christ, by the Spirit, you have given us ears to hear. And you have loosened our tongues so that we praise and pray. And so it is that we come to you now. Our tongues loosened. We pray to you. We speak. And we ask you to give us ears to hear again, that we might hear your voice speaking through the scriptures. We say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lately, our family has been touring college campuses And you know how that sort of thing goes. You you can tour a college, and as you make your way around, you think, okay, this is is nice, this is promising, this has got some real strengths, we'll keep this one on the list. You can also tour a college and think, where did we park? Let's just go to the car right now. We're striking this one off the list. Let's not even finish the tour. But maybe, just maybe, you might tour a college and find yourself thinking, wow. You might even look at a family member and mouth that during the tour. Wow. How about this place? The beauty of the campus and the the spirit of the student body and the strength of the academics and it's just the right distance from home and the food is edible. Wow. This is amazing. Top of the list. And it's like that with a lot of things in life. It could be a piece of music 
that blows you away, especially when you hear it for the first time. Could be a, a breathtaking city skyline, especially the first time you see it. Amazed, astonished, breath taken away. But that's the challenge, isn't it? The challenge is to stay amazed over time by that which is truly and properly amazing, even to grow in it. After the initial happy shock wears off, to retain that sense of wonder and awe at the thought that something, anything, could be this good, even to grow in that sense. Because familiarity does not have to breed contempt. Sometimes it does. But it doesn't have to. To actually grow in a different and ever-deepening sense of amazement because this thing or this person is worthy of it. And that brings us to Jesus, no surprise, this morning. That brings us to Christ. It's an interesting Bible word search that you can do in the Gospels to look up every appearance of every variant of the words wonder, amaze, astonish, marvel, over and over again. As Jesus is going from town to town preaching and healing over and over again, people's jaws are dropping because of the things that he did, because of the things that he taught, because of the way that he taught, story after story. And out of all of those stories in the Gospels, this one in Mark 7 stands out. Here Jesus heals a man, and the people aren't just astonished. Mark says... They were astonished beyond measure. They were completely amazed. So this is a great story. And for that reason, it stands out. For starters here this morning, let's just notice the basic facts and figures in the story. Who's involved? What happens? Let's make our way through the story like that. And then when we've done that, we'll take a step back and think about what we can learn from it. So that's how we'll go about it here. So for starters, an overview of the story. Beginning with verse 31, take a look at verse 31. This is the setting. I mean the setting on the map. Look at verse 31. Then he, that is Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So Jesus had been in the region of Tyre. That was a region to the north and west, up north on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. But now Jesus has come back down to the region around the Sea of Galilee, the the region of the Decapolis. That means the ten cities. So that's the setting, verse 31. Next comes verse 32 The entreaty, the entreaty. Look at verse 32. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Verse 32. So clearly, 
Jesus already has a reputation for being able to heal people. And so understandably, these folks bring this man to Jesus so that he will heal this other man. And just stop and think about what it must have been like in those days, in that region, as Jesus is going around from town to town. Here's a man who everybody must have assumed is going to be like this for the rest of his life, deaf and with a speech impediment. Of course he's going to be like that for the rest of his life. That's, that's just not the sort of thing that gets fixed, right? That's just the way it's always going to be. And then in those days, in that region, there's this other man who's going from town to town, and word gets around that with a word from his mouth or with a touch of his hand, he can fix anything. He can heal anyone. Word gets around that apparently things don't have to stay the way they've always been after all. There's this man who can touch somebody who knows everybody isn't supposed to change, and he changes them. So suddenly, a whole new world of possibilities has opened up for the people in this region who are suffering all sorts of things or who know and love someone who is, including the possibility of restoration. No wonder they didn't just bring this man to Jesus. They begged. They implored Jesus to heal him. That's the entreaty in verse 32. And then sure enough, what follows, verses 33 through 35, is the healing. Look at it again, verse 33. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. So this is a private moment. It's one of those tender private moments that is then recorded in the pages of Holy Scripture in order to be read and heard by the innumerable hosts of the people of God for the past 2,000 years. So just when you think it's just between you and Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus took him aside from the crowd privately. It wasn't unusual for Jesus to do this sort of thing. It could be that Jesus anticipated that what he was about to do would be misinterpreted by a large crowd around, maybe. Could be that Jesus took him aside privately as an expression of his compassion for this man. That for his sake, Jesus wanted to calm things down before he took an action that was about to turn this man's life upside down. Maybe. In any case, whatever the reason was, Jesus does take him aside and Jesus does heal him. Verses 33 through 35. What follows then is verse 36, and this is the charge. Look at verse 36. Jesus charged them to to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. 
Here too, Mark doesn't doesn't go into detail. He, He doesn't tell us why Jesus charged them to tell no one. But this isn't a great surprise either. Jesus did this now and then because his actions might be misinterpreted or because the crowds might get too big. Jesus did this now and then. So we shouldn't be surprised by this. I'll also say we shouldn't be scandalized by the fact that the charge that Jesus gave was disobeyed. And word did get around. The fact that Jesus was the Son of God, that didn't mean that every charge he gave was going to be obeyed. For that matter, it may be that as true man, he didn't know that his charge was going to be disobeyed. Remember, in his human nature, Jesus didn't know everything. And so he meant it when he charged them, and sadly, they meant it when they didn't listen to him. So I say to you, Christian, behold your Savior. It's not just your calling. It was Jesus' calling as well to have to deal with frustrations, including dealing with very frustrating people. And is there anybody who's more frustrating than the guy who won't keep quiet when the one thing that you most want is for him to keep quiet. So Jesus gives that charge, which is then subsequently ignored. And then finally, verse 37, the reaction. Verse 37 says this, They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, astonished beyond measure. So there's the story as it unfolds. The setting in verse 31, the entreaty in verse 32, the healing in verses 33 through 35, the charge that Jesus gives in 36, and the reaction to it in verse 37. So that's what unfolds here. Now, Now we can take a step back and reflect upon this. What can we learn from this? And there there are four themes here I want to note, four points I want us to reflect upon, lessons that we can learn. The first is who Jesus is. The second is what Jesus does. The third is how Jesus does it. And the fourth is how we react. So those four aspects of this worth exploring. Who Jesus is, what he does, how he does it, and how we ought to react to it all. So first of all, there are lessons to be learned here about who Jesus is. Who is this person who takes this man aside and heals him? Well, notice these two details in Jesus' interaction with this man. These two details in particular. One, Jesus looks up to heaven. And two, Jesus sighs. Because each of those sheds light on who Jesus was and who he remains. Looks up to heaven and sighs. First of all, what do we make of the fact that he looked up to heaven? Could be that he did so in order to communicate something to this deaf man. 
to, to send a signal to him by his own countenance, by his own posture, that this man is about to become the object of heaven's power. That could be. Again, Mark doesn't tell us. Still, this upward glance speaks volumes about who Jesus is. Jesus is the heavenly man. Jesus' whole life was bathed in heaven's light and heaven's power. Jesus could look up like nobody else could look up. Because in that moment, he was looking up as one who'd come down from heaven. As one who was abiding in perfect fellowship with heaven. As one who'd been anointed with the Spirit above measure from heaven. And as the one who had the joy set before him that one day he would be exalted again into heaven. And it's that man, it's Jesus, that heavenly man, who literally lays his hands, his human hands, on the heartbreaking brokenness of earth. And it's in that moment that he looks up. The heavenly man. And not only that, but it's in that moment that he sighs. It's not the sigh of impatience, the way we sometimes sigh. Certainly not a sigh of bliss, not in a moment like that. But it is a sigh of deep emotion. This is the emotion of a man who is himself deeply affected by the brokenness that's standing right in front of him. So that's who Jesus was. Heavenly man who felt deeply because he looked up and he sighed. That's who he was. And brothers and sisters, that's who Jesus still is. Because he is the heavenly man, now he's the God-man in heaven. And he's the God-man who feels, he feels deeply just the way the God-man should and must. And every time, Christian you go to Jesus in prayer, you can bear in mind that those things are true of him. That's why you go to him in prayer. Now you're the one in prayer who's looking up to heaven. And whenever you do so, what do you see? You see him. You see Christ in heaven at the right hand of the majesty on high. He who once looked up, he has now been raised up, and now you're the one who's looking up to him. You see him right where he belongs, at the right hand of the Father. And not only that, but you look up to him knowing that he feels deeply. For he who once walked here and looked up here, he remembers perfectly. And Hebrews chapter 4 ties all of this together so sweetly. Hebrews 4 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's Hebrews 4. And that is, that brings it all together. He is the heavenly high priest, and he's a heavenly high priest who is able to sympathize with us when we suffer. So when you go to him in prayer, Will you remember that? Jesus, who looked up and who sighed, now looks down as you look up. The heavenly man 
who feels deeply. Christian, remember that when you pray. That's what positively drives you to prayer in the first place. That's who Jesus is. So that was the first. Here's the second now. What Jesus does. Because this story sheds light on the Savior that he is. He saves. Stop and think about what this man does, or what Jesus does for this man here. He, He grants this man the ability to hear. He grants him the ability to speak. And there are spiritual realities that are being pictured there. Remember what the psalmist in Psalm 115 says about idols? He says this, They have mouths but do not speak. They have ears but do not hear. Those who make them become like them. Apart from the renewing grace of God, people cannot hear. In the sense that the gospel sounds like nonsense to them. And people can't speak either. Because the sound of praise doesn't come forth from them. No wonder Jesus keeps saying over and over again in the Gospels, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The fact is a lot of people don't. Most people don't. But when Jesus comes, when the Spirit comes and renews a person's heart, then that person can hear. Now the Gospel doesn't just make sense in a new way, it makes beautiful, glorious sense. And then that person can speak in a new way. Because he starts praising and praying. So what Jesus does for this man here, yes, it's it's a picture of aspects of our salvation. But there are also physical realities that are going on here. Again, think about what Jesus does for this man. He, He comes upon this man who cannot hear and who cannot speak, not clearly. And the mercy that Jesus shows him is not to lift him up to some higher plane of experience where bodies don't matter. Where it doesn't matter if your ears work or if your mouth works. Jesus doesn't calm this man by somehow communicating to him, matter doesn't matter, go in peace. Go forth and transcend all of these meaningless faculties like hearing and speaking. No, Jesus heals this man. Jesus makes his body work. The outcome for this man is that his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Now, this is not a resurrection story. The outcome for this man is not that he was suddenly physically glorified the way we'll be glorified at the end of the age. This isn't resurrection, but it is a story that points us there. It does point forward all the way to the resurrection of the body at the end of the age because a healing story like this one sets the divine seal of approval on the body. The body matters. And so a story like this, a healing like this, points us forward. In Romans 8, Paul says we're groaning, we're sighing as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's Romans 8. Our bodies matter. And a story like this, 
though it's not resurrection, points us forward to the day when resurrection shall be ours. We human beings, we were made in the image of the God who hears and speaks. And therefore, for us to be saved, for us to be fully glorified, that's got to involve us being made able to hear and speak. And though it's mysterious to us now, of course it is, in the world to come, clothed with our resurrection bodies, surely we will experience even the senses of hearing and speaking as we've never known them before. Christian, this is what Christ has done for you. That he, this is what he's going to do for you. Already he's given you ears to hear the gospel. Already he's loosened your tongue to give him praise. And someday he's going to raise your body too because the body is good. Christian, that's your hope. That's why I wanted to read for us earlier in our service Isaiah 35. That's why I changed the reading at the last minute. Isaiah 35 says, The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Sighing and groaning. These are the days of sighing, but a day is coming when we will not hear any of that anymore. And Christian, that is your hope. So the first was who Jesus is. The second is what Jesus does. Now here's our third. How Jesus does it. How it is that our Savior saves Well, in this story, how does Jesus heal? Well, here's how he heals this man in Mark 7. He takes and touches and spits and touches again and looks and sighs and speaks. We can say Jesus was involved. Jesus was physically involved in this man's healing. And we know this from reading the Gospels that Jesus didn't have to be. Jesus didn't have to do any of the things that he does in this healing physically. Because there are instances in the gospel in which Jesus healed people without touching them. There are instances in the gospel of Jesus healing people without even going to where they were. So why? Why does Jesus heal this man this way? Well, again, Mark doesn't tell us why. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from it. First of all, the fact that Jesus healed this man like this, it shows us Jesus' compassion. There's something so tender about the way Jesus deals with this man. This man whose life is about to be turned upside down. And can't you imagine that it must have been a moment of some fear for this man? who has only known his body one way all his days. And, and, and now there's this, this tumult because of this, this traveling preacher and healer. And now his friends take him to Jesus. And now Jesus takes him aside privately. The sense of fear 
and anxiety that must have been deafening in this man's quiet internal world. Is it not beautiful? The tender compassion that Jesus exhibits in the way that he deals with him. So there's that, first of all. This is a, a display of the compassion of Jesus. And this, second of all, it shows us Jesus' nearness as well. Jesus' nearness. We might squirm just a little bit reading this story at the thought of how Jesus healed this man, given the fact that this is the Son of God who healed him, especially the spitting part. And so we might blanch a little bit at that detail in the story. I'll just say this, by the way. I mean, think about the Bible itself, just to put things in perspective. Think about the kinds of things that you read in the Bible Take the exodus from Egypt. The people of Israel were supposed to slaughter a bunch of lambs and then smear the blood on their doorposts. The Christian faith founded upon this book is not for the squeamish. Read the Bible and you're going to read a lot about blood and sweat and tears and spit and more. It's actually one of the glories of the Bible that it is so down to earth, perhaps it weighs that we're not expecting, perhaps in ways that surprise us. And bear this in mind as well. This is not an isolated incident in the ministry of Jesus. Think about John chapter 9. There's another healing story. How did Jesus heal the blind man in John 9? Well, it says this. Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. It's the word of God. That's your Savior, who at times healed like that. So we shouldn't be thrown by the fact that we read what we read here in John 7. And it tells us something about how Jesus saves sinners like ourselves. If we read this story, the touching and the spitting and the touching again, even touching the man's tongue And we find ourselves thinking, oh, this is a little too close for comfort. The answer is, exactly. There's a spiritual reality that's being pictured here, which is that Jesus does not save sinners like ourselves at arm's length. Jesus saves sinners by getting involved, by drawing near. By coming up very, very close. No, he didn't always heal this way. He didn't have to. But when he did, as he does here, it's a picture of that. Of the kind of Savior that he is. Not only did the Son of God take to himself a human nature. So that he's now one of us. And and still wears that nature and ever shall. But also the Son of God now saves sinners by forging a relationship between himself and the believer that is so intimate that the Bible calls it being in Christ. And having Christ in you. And you can imagine, you know, deep down the Christian might be thinking, well, look, I'm all for union with Christ, but let's not get carried away. Deep down, a Christian might be thinking something a little bit like what Peter said to Jesus, which was, go away from me, Lord. 
I am a sinful man. But you see, that's exactly why he can't go away from you. You are a sinful man, a sinful woman. That's precisely why he can't save you in the grand scheme of things, can't save you at arm's length without getting involved. Too close for comfort? Exactly. And this is no time for comfort when everlasting destinies are in the balance. This is no time for the Son of God to stay far away and handle things in a way that respects our comfort zone. Christian, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and it doesn't get any closer than that. Don't say to him, go away from me, Lord. That's the last thing you'd want. Glory in this, that Christ has drawn very, near to you. And he's never leaving. Christ, who is now in you, and you are in him, is the one who says, I will never leave. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that, that is something to glory in and not to push away. That's how Jesus saves So who Jesus is, what he does, how he does it, here's our fourth and final, which is how we react to him. How we react to Jesus. How did people react to him here in this story in Mark 7? As I said before, they weren't just astonished. They were astonished beyond measure. So here's the question. Why? Why were they so astonished like that? Well, they were astonished in part because they were so surprised. I mean, if you flip back just a few chapters to chapter 2, there's another healing story, and it says this, chapter 2, after the healing. The people were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. That's back in chapter 2. They were amazed, and they, they said, we've never seen anything like this. So that was the point. This was unprecedented. This was surprising. And something like that is going on here in our story in chapter 7. Why are they astonished beyond measure? Because, they say, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. For hundreds of years there have been no prophets. And now this, this, this man from Nazareth, is doing this. And so they were amazed. Of course they were. They were astonished beyond measure. It makes perfect sense that they were. So that makes sense in the story, but then the question becomes, where does that leave us today? Where does that leave us today who have read this story in Mark before? Maybe hundreds of times before. Or who or at least familiar with the idea that, yes, Jesus was a healer. And these are stories that think about things that happened thousands of years ago. This is not, as the cable news networks like to trumpet, breaking news. And have you noticed that every one of their hourly broadcasts begins with breaking news? 
For us Christians today, it's just a given that Jesus performed miracles. Of course he did. He was the Son of God. He was anointed with the Spirit above measure. So for us, this isn't unprecedented. In a sense, this isn't surprising. In Jesus' day, people were saying, we've never seen anything like this. In our day, we Christians are saying, we've seen this time and time again whenever we open our Bibles and read the Gospels. In a sense, nothing new. I remember somebody once pointed out to me a review of one of my own books on Amazon. And it was a review that was posted by somebody who went by the name Customer. And right away you think, this is not going to end well. So here's what Customer had to say about my book. Nothing new or of particular interest. I can smile about it now. Actually, I think I smiled a wry smile even then. Customer. Nothing new or of particular interest. Now, obviously, we're not in the position of writing Amazon reviews of the Word of God, though I'm guessing... It's been done. But if you had to post your own honest reaction on Amazon to Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37, would it read something like, nothing new or of particular interest? Because you've read this story before and a host of stories like it in the Gospels. Is that the review that you would give. And then the question is, would you put your name to it? Or would you just put customer or reader? Here's the key. We ought to be astonished by what Jesus does here in Mark 7. Not with the astonishment of surprise like theirs, but with the astonishment of ever-deepening faith, a faith that beholds the Son of God who was actually willing to come down into this world and deal with sinners like this. The people who saw him do this in Mark 7, they were astonished because they knew so little about Jesus. We Christians today ought to be astonished because we know so much about Jesus. We know so much more about him than they did. We know so much more about him than they could have known. They were thinking, who is this? And that's why they were amazed. We're thinking, we know very well who this is, and that's why we can be amazed. And we're getting to know him better and better. Because familiarity doesn't have to breed contempt. We know who this is. This is the Son of God in human flesh. Come for our salvation. Come to die on a Roman cross. Come to rise from a borrowed tomb. So on the one hand, yes, we say, of course, Jesus performed miracles. And yet we ought to be filled with wonder at the very fact that we say, of course. The fact that we can say, of course, Jesus performed miracles, that itself is astonishing. To think that the Son of God came down and cared for people like that. On the last day, when Jesus comes back 
and, and, and raises our bodies and renews the world and makes everything whole, yes, we'll be saying, of course. But we will not be shrugging our shoulders. Just imagine the wonder of that day. We know who this is. We know him. We know his love. We know the love of the Father who sent him. We know the promises of the Father that are behind all this. And we ought to be amazed whenever we think about it. And we ought to think about it. That itself is one of the the gospel strategies for growing in our wonder. Think about it. Put your phone down and go for a walk and meditate on it. That the Son of God should be willing to come down and become flesh and dwell among us and heal and suffer and rise and save. The astonishment of ever-deepening faith and the faith part is key. Faith. Genuine saving faith Sadly, it's possible to be astonished at Jesus without real faith. To put it bluntly, it's possible for a person at some point in his life to be astonished at Jesus and then be eternally lost. And you can't help but think that that was almost certainly true of at least some of these people who witnessed this in Mark 7. As wonderful as it is that people's jaws are dropping... When they behold the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, it's also pretty sobering. Because we know that it wasn't necessarily the astonishment of a genuine faith. We know something about these crowds in the Gospels. Even to the end, in Jerusalem, before they turned on him. So for us, let it be the astonishment of those who are in Christ. And Christ is in us. Not the amazement of those who are just peering through the window without being willing to walk through the door, but the wonder of those who have gone in and who know him up close and personal with the knowledge of saving faith. So, brothers and sisters, behold your Savior. Behold the man who healed this man in Mark 7 and prize the revelation of him that we're given here. The revelation of his person, his works, his ways. Surely we should be able to say with faith and astonishment, he has done all things well. Amen. Let's pray together. So, Lord Jesus, do we stand before you now in prayer? Heavenly man seated at heaven's right hand, feeling deeply for us, sympathetic high priest. We thank you for the salvation that's ours in you. We thank you that you've drawn so near to save us. And we do pray that as we get to know you better and better, we might grow in wonder. May it be so, and amen.